I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, I talk to award-winning actor of the stage and screen, Lois Smith. I really was able to make a living as an actor from the beginning. It's partly because there was so much television in New York then. You really had to make it across the studio for the next cue, changing your clothes on the way. It was <laughs> amazingly exciting. Lois Smith's career has spanned generations of film and theater history, from her highly celebrated turn in the 2017 sci-fi drama Marjorie Prime and as a nun in the Greta Gerwig-directed Lady Bird, going all the way back to her film debut in 1955's East of Eden alongside actor James Dean. Not to mention starring alongside Jack Nicholson in the classic 1970 new Hollywood film Five Easy Pieces. And for me personally, I also grew up loving her in big blockbuster films like Twister and Minority Report. But her real roots are on the stage, where she's a fixture on the New York theater scene and a member of Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater Company. She earned two Tony Award nominations for Steppenwolf shows that landed on Broadway, including 1990's Grapes of Wrath and the 1996 revival of Buried Child. Josh recently had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with Lois right here in New York. Hi, Lois. Hi, Josh. <laughs> Thanks for coming down today. <laughs> My pleasure. So we've known each other for uh, a number of years, and last year you uh, starred in My Wife Lily Thorne's play. And yep. uh, I'm just really happy to get the chance to ask you some things I've wanted to know about your amazing life and career. So a lot's been made about the fact that at, at a time in life when few people in any field are continuing their, their earlier work pace, that you're working nonstop and doing some of the most celebrated work of your career. Uh, but it seems to me you've always worked and, and loved to work since your Broadway debut in, in 1952, is that right? That's right, in a play on Broadway, my first job as an actor. Yep. Do you remember uh, when it first occurred to you that acting might be something you'd want to do? <laughs> when I was a very little girl, my father, who worked for the telephone company and rarely saw a movie and rarely saw theater, took night classes in acting and directing. Uh, still a kind of mystery to me. But he did it because he wanted to put plays on in the church. He was a pillar of the church in the Protestant church we belonged to in Topeka, Kansas. And then later in St. Joseph, Missouri, he moved to Seattle, where he had longed to move to the West Coast. By taking trips, he realized that's where he wanted to be. But every time we went someplace, the front of the church began to sort of slowly change a little so that it accommodated the plays that he put on. I was a very little girl when this started, and I would go with him to rehearsals because it was fun. And I would sit there, learn all the lines, if somebody wasn't there, I could say their part. That was clearly the beginning. I was with my beloved father, and that's what we were doing. When there was a part for me, I think I played Eve in some sort of pageant when I was about probably four or five. <laughs> but I don't have a lot of memory about that. I do just know that that's where it started. And then I went a couple of years to the University of Washington and was in many plays. It happened to be a remarkable drama department in that they had two theaters that ran year-round, cast by students in the drama department. One was a round theater, and it was the first permanent round theater that wasn't in a tent. It was just beginning to be something that occurred. And the other was a proscenium stage. All year long, these two theaters put on plays that were cast with students. Each play ran for six weeks, 
six nights a week to a paid audience. It was the most incredible experience. I don't know anything else like it, and of course it doesn't exist anymore. But that was part of my training. At the same time, I was taking acting classes, and because of, of this teacher's history in New York City at the time he was there, we were reading Stanislavski and Boleslavski and Rappaport mm -hmm. and doing exercises and scene work that later became very prominent. Did you feel like you were a part of a new movement in acting? I think I became aware of it later when I was in New York. The main thing was that I had so much experience at doing a play, not just for a weekend, but Monday to Thursday they would let the theater out to groups who would, you know, take it and sell tickets to their members. And then on Friday and Saturday it was open to the public. So I had all this experience, like a stock company really, yeah. of performing six nights a week for six weeks in each play. It was amazing. Yeah, that's something that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, yeah, it used to be the best training ground for yeah. actors. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot, a lot of actors talk about the theater as their church or you know, sort of a sacred mm. space. And I always thought it was interesting that you really did come out of I really that did. tradition. I really <laughs> did, yes. So your father was had some concerns about you being an actress. How did the rest of your siblings and, and your mother uh, react to your career? As you I think it was work? just an anomaly. It had nothing to do with the family I grew up in. I had a brother who, who sang and occasionally um, acted in school, or, but that's not what he pursued in his life. It was really not part of my family. I think they were interested. Then I went to New York and started working, and that was of interest. But by then I was a the width of the country away from my family. And of course, I went back to Seattle often, but it was not a family profession. So your first play was A Time for Ginger with Melvin Time Douglas? Out for Ginger Time with, Out for Ginger. Yes, with Melvin Douglas, who became a close friend and a wonderful beginning. Do you remember where you were when you got that job? I was able to get some appointments and make the rounds, as, and we actually made the rounds in those days. One would go to offices Drop and, off your headshots. And, yes, yeah. drop off your headshots, meet the people, and sit and talk. And I had an audition for this play, Time Out for Ginger, which had three teenage girls in it. I remember during that audition, the man who was partly on the telephone while I was delivering my monologue. <laughs> but when this Classic. play came along, they... Um, I think they called in, you know, every young girl they knew who was might be right for this. So I got this audition, and I remember sitting in a room at the agency with the semicircle of people, including Melvin Douglas and the director, Shepard Traub. We read the scene. Yeah, I could see that it went very well. And at the end, one of them said to me, and what have you done? And I said, nothing. That's what's <laughs> wrong with me. <laughs> but I got the part. And before I had got in, I was sitting in the, in the waiting room with a, another actress, and we looked at each other, and I remember thinking, we sort of look alike. And I asked her what she was auditioning for the older sister, and I was auditioning for the middle sister. We both got the parts, as it turned out. Her name was Mary Hartig, and she ended up marrying the playwright later. <laughs> But that was my beginning. The last day of that run, it ran all season, Time Out for Ginger, and when it closed in, I believe in June, the very last performance, my character in the last scene was dressed up as uh, Victoria Regina and was about to be in the school play, and she had a scene with her mother and father with Melvin Douglas and Polly Rolls. Often they were coming to see the play that evening, and I was sort of telling them how to behave, I think. And at the end of the scene, my last scene, I left, 
and Melvin Douglas ad-libbed that last night. She's going to be a great actress, that kid. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I've ever been given a more lovely gift. <laughs> Isn't that just the sweetest thing? <laughs> That's amazing. And were there any actors at that time who you emulated or, or when you came to New York thought, oh, that, who were sort of heroes to you? I guess I was very aware of Julie Harris. Mm -hmm. And later we worked together, not very much later, in the movie East of Eden, which was my first film. Do you remember where you were and how you felt when you got the East of Eden job? I, what I remember is that I got the call that I got the job. Um, by then, my husband was at school at Harvard, and I had this feeling that I didn't have anybody to tell. I mean, mm. of course, I told him, but I felt by myself. And I remember taking a huge, long walk in New York City, which I love to do anyway. But I remember that sense of, oh, oh, look at this. I have a job <laughs> in a Broadway play. Now what? You know? <laughs> Wait for the first day of rehearsal. That's right. For some actors, it's always the, that's the, really the best part of any job is finding out you get it. And then you sort of realize, oh, now, now I have to do it. Uh, so when you first came to New York and you were um, studying with a lot of the teachers who had come out of the Russian movement and you, you worked at the actor's studio... Is that right? Yes, I auditioned for at the actor's studio with one of my student friends from the University of, of Washington and didn't get in. And then sometime later, I don't remember, I auditioned again and did get in. And Lee Strasberg was at that time the, running it and the, the only moderator and teacher there. What happened to me was after my experience at the University of, of Washington, and I came to New York and it was in the early 50s. The group theater had been roughly the decade of the 40s, mm -hmm. and I was aware of it uh, while I was still in Seattle. Uh, I'd read about it a bit. Um, and that was finished, um, but the people from the group became the directors, the actors, the teachers from then on for really quite a while, including even now, actually. And that was part of what I inherited and became a part of, certainly as a beginner and not even a very well-informed beginner, that was my continual training, actually. You didn't have that burning ambition to become a Hollywood oh, star. Oh, dear, I did no. not. No, I did not. No, you seem like someone who's always just gone to where the good roles are and the good work and the good writers, especially. Oh, listen, and a person who was really lucky, you know, <laughs> yes, to keep working the way I did. Well, but, but some people, you talked about your friend who went to Hollywood and how these sort of, you make these choices, and you seem to have worked in almost every medium in a, that a was very so democratic lucky. way. There was so much television in New York. It was live when I started. My yeah. first job in television was live. It, you know, you really had to make it across the studio for the next cue, changing your clothes on the way. It was <laughs> amazingly exciting. <laughs> Before long, it, they became taped instead of live, but the first ones were live. You always struck me as someone who seems singularly uninterested in fame, per se. Um, you always seem to be drawn toward the best writing and the best storytelling. But have there been times in your life when you sort of wish you'd been more famous just in order to have access to media roles? Or do you feel like your versatility and ability to work so much was almost because you weren't saddled with that kind of oversized celebrity that, that tends to pigeonhole people sometimes? You know, I don't even know how to answer that. I, um, this profession requires having enough attention, uh, uh, some bit of fame, 
and enough money to keep at it. And I feel very fortunate in both of those ways. I, I really was able to make a living as an actor from the beginning, and that's... Rarity. A rarity. It's partly because there was so much television in New York then. Yeah. There, w- there was lots of television. And the, the Broadway theater, where I had my first job, there were so many plays. I, can't, I don't even remember the numbers, but it dwarfs the, the number of Broadway plays now. Right. And with all those plays going on, was there a, a different sense of the community of, of actors in New York and in, in, in theater at that time? There I mean, certainly was a sense of community of actors. You know, I guess it's always hard... As the years went on, I find myself thinking, well, how do people now do it? You know, I guess it was hard, and it was hard to find a place to live and pay the rent, but my goodness, nothing like. Mm. Now I think, where do they live? They, they live... With 10 roommates they come, in Yeah, 10 roommates. And, yeah. and Yes, in Queens or, in, in, or farther away than that. Yeah. It astonishes me how hard that must be, because that was not that hard for me. Yeah. yeah. So coming out of the actor's studio... Uh, over the arc of your career, have you been aware of an evolution in the craft of acting? Or do you, as you've worked with different generations and different directors coming up, or have you just always approached the work as the way you work and it fits into whatever scheme you find yourself in? I guess I haven't felt a, a lack of versatility or ability, to, but, but maybe I haven't gone very far afield either. It seemed to me that what happened was that the intimacy and psychological connections that were basically what happened with this Russian influence and all of these teachers, I still see it all the time. I see it in old movies. I don't know if they were directly influenced by this. I've heard it said that it was like changed the sort of artificial, at least in England, drawing room comedy sort of artificialness, and that's probably nothing that I was ever really part of. But it doesn't seem to me a problem. Uh, no, I don't think it's draw, a problem draw, for you. <laughs> draw, drawing, drawing room comedy benefits from intimate depth of, yes. of, of exploration. Yeah. And that, that doesn't seem to me to be a problem. Yeah. And I know you've been nominated for two Tony Awards for uh, Buried Child and for Graves of Wrath. Um, Those two, Grapes of Wrath and Buried Child, I became part of the Steppenwolf Company. Uh, Grapes of Wrath was my first working with them, and and Buried Child, which Gary Sinise directed marvelously. Uh, Sam Shepard wanted to do it again and and to work on it, so he was with us both in the Chicago production and in New York. I saw the Chicago production. Ah. It was amazing. Yeah, I I, I feel enormously. Um, Fortunate, they are both very precious and pillars for me of of uh, good work and good good luck. Suppose I'll be remiss if I don't uh, ask you about some of your most iconic films. When you were doing Five Easy Pieces, playing the sister of Jack Nicholson, did Bob Raffleson? How did he work in a, in a, a way that? You know, he was sort of the you know one of the young Turks of that new yes, Hollywood. Yes, it was in the really 70s. the sort of beginning of the independence. Yeah, yeah. were you yeah. aware that you were working with a, a sort of a new breed of director? In a way, yes. Yeah. But I was in uh, Los Angeles doing Harold Kerman's production of Uncle Vanya, playing Sonia, when I got the call about Five Easy Pieces, and Bob had been working at Channel Thirteen in New York. They call it Play of the Week. I did Miss Julie, and The Master Builder mm-hmm. there. And Bob was there, so he knew me from that. 
And he sent one of his producers to see Vanya, and uh, then they offered me the part, which was lovely, in five easy pieces. So that's that's how I got that. And I, Bob Rafelson, um, I just very recently came back from uh, doing a Wes Anderson film in France. We had dinner every night, the whole company and the people who most of them worked with him many, many years and over many films. It's a very communal, inclusive, friendly way to make a movie company. The only previous experience that I'd had anywhere like it was with Bob Rafelson. When we did Five Easy Pieces, we were we all stayed at the same motel in Vancouver Island where the, mm. that part of the film took place. Mm-hmm. And every night, we all had dinner together with Bob at the head of the table talking about the day's work and the next day's work, and it was... Would you watch the uh, dailies? You know, I don't think we had dailies to watch. I'm trying to remember. In my earliest films, and not even just the earliest, that's another thing that was such a wonderful thing. We used to, at the end of the day, which would be like 6 o'clock, not 12 midnight... Uh um, Civilized. We would watch dailies. There'd be like sandwiches and you know, maybe. And that was how it was. And it was, I thought, oh, that's the way it is. But it's not that way any longer, any longer. So you've worked with, I'd say, I guess, four generations of of some of the, you know, best directors working in film. I mean, starting with Elia Kazan and Mervyn Leroy and then Bob Raffleson and Paul Mazursky. One of my favorite performances of yours is in Next Up, Greenwich Village. Yes, And then another one of my favorite is in in the next generation of Steven Spielberg and Taylor Hackford. But in Minority Report, your scene in the greenhouse with Tom Cruise is one of my favorite performances of yours. Thanks. I like it, too. I love that. And now with uh, Wes Anderson and Greta Gerwig and the... Oh, how about that? Am I not a fortunate person? It's pretty amazing, yeah. And I suppose we should talk a little bit about one of your most celebrated recent uh, performances in um, Marjorie Prime. You created the role on stage and then made the film and then went back to stage, which is one of the most unusual situations Most ever. unusual, and a play I truly love. You know, in recent years, I've been working in the theater a lot in New York and uh, pretty much on 42nd Street. That's just what happened. That's where, well, it's been at Signature Theater and Playwrights Horizons, mostly. And I've been so lucky to be really back and forth for the two of them for, I think I've done five plays at Signature and four at Playwrights Horizons over the years, and many of them in recent, very recent years. So it's, um, I feel very fortunate about that. And do you remember a certain point when you realized that you weren't having to audition anymore? And then, it... for the most part, I don't. Once yeah. in a while, still, especially if it's a film, or, you know. But mostly, I don't. And that, oh yeah, that is really that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a perk of a... it. Is certainly is a perk. <laughs> yes, just hang around long enough. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you sort of came of age in in the era of unions, uh, and you were talking about how. You, Sort of more and more, you you've been appreciating the uh, the actors' unions. Yes, this morning, getting ready to come here, I think I told you I was looking at my bank statement, and it began to occur to me, not for the first time, of course, the uh, in preparation for talking about about all of this. Again, I think you mentioned standing on the on the shoulders of giants. Well, 
I think we all stand on each other's shoulders and hands and hearts and thoughts. It's not only the giants, but when I first came to New York and became quickly a, mem a member of Actors' Equity, and not much later of uh, the Screen Actors Guild, and at the time of what was then AFTRA, the television and radio, which are now joined together, I was aware that there was a fight going on when I was first here. Up until that point, actors who were applying for unemployment insurance uh, had been required to take any job that came along, and the act Actors' Equity was fighting for uh, that acting was a profession, and you could, yes, you're looking for work, but you're looking for work as an actor. Yeah. And they won that battle. That was, I barely knew about it. I was really brand new in the city. Yeah. It's huge. Also, uh, during my earlier years, actors being paid for residuals came into being. I remember at one point I was sent a bunch of, had to fill out a lot of stuff and get records because... Um, after a certain date, I don't remember what that date is, actors are now now get residuals, which I still get. I was aware of that this morning, uh, all these many years later. And very importantly, because I've been at this for a very long time, I draw a pension because my union has arranged for pensions. And what a difference that is. This means that I can work and make money, which I'm fortunately able to do. But I'm also earning a pension, and if I don't work, I'm okay. That's something that I think it's very hard to understand if you're young. There are less and less union members mm -hmm. in our country, and it has, it has been a blessing financially to have this kind of support. Yeah, not something to be complacent about. There's a handful of writers that I feel like you've had a continuing um, relationship with, uh, Horton Foote, Sam yes. Shepard, yes. uh, John Steinbeck. Chekhov. Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about how you've, what you've gotten from having a continuing relationship with a writer as opposed to just doing one piece by a writer? Do you, do you find themes and things that you, through lines that you can find in some of these writers' works for yourself? Oh, definitely. Um, my goodness. That's it, a big question. In every case, yes. Chekhov is an early love and... With Horton, um, that kind of the pleasure of having a living writer who is so deeply involved and cares. He was an actor, too, and he loves actors, mm -hmm. and he's there. He's re I, I speak of him in the present, which, which I guess I think of he him feels that way. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then Tennessee, I've, I've worked in a couple of Tennessee's plays. It's not as though I, it was a, like a long continuing, but there still is that sense of this writer holds you up, it holds you aloft. <laughs> and uh, these are continuing blessings. They really are. They're continuing facts. You know, well, you're an actor, you know. When you're, when you're in the presence of that kind of playwriting, <laughs> I was thinking lately how collaborative what we do is. I once had a conversation with an old friend who's a novelist, and she tried to write a play, and then she was horrified at the thought that somebody else was going to, like, interpret this and do it. <laughs> she never, ever wanted to ever try that again. Uh, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's, that's a big, of what a we big do. deal <laughs> and the opposite yeah. of what we do. Yes, right. 
Because you've, you've done an enormous amount of new plays. Do you feel like there's pros and cons to having the playwright in the room and then sometimes the freedom of not having them in the room as well? Oh, I love having them in the room. I yeah. Yes, I recently worked with Craig Lucas, mm-hmm. with Lily, with mm-hmm. your Lily, uh, Lily Thorne, and uh, Jordan Harrison. I adore his work. Marjorie Prime. I love yeah. Marjorie Prime. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different thing, you know, with... If you're going to do Shakespeare, which I've done so little of, and that's a regret, I'm really sorry about that. Me too. And, and uh, in those cases, like, I feel like maybe the job is to start from scratch <laughs> as mm. though it's a new play. Mm. You know, but this is something I have not, not as much experience with as I would like to have. But it's it's very different. You, we're, Here we are, we've got the text. Mm. and. You always start with the text, but when you start with the text and the writer at the same time, it's different. It's much more, um, well, they're alive and with you, and it's a, it's a, it's a, a great treat. It's lovely to have the combination. Yeah. Um, and after having had the experience of doing Marjorie Prime on stage and then being made into a beautiful film by the great Michael Almereda, did it make you wish that other... Uh, it's so rare that actors get to do movies of plays they're in. They usually yes, they usually so remade in a bigger scale with you know that's huge right, movie with a, stars. With a movie star, yeah. I know that was really so lucky. Michael Almereda, whom I've known for many years, we did a film together many years ago and have been friends ever since. He knew that I loved this play, and he came out to see the first production of it, which was in L.A. and and afterwards said. I'd, I'd like to make a film of this. And it happened. I mean, really, really, what good luck. <laughs> he and I got him and Jordan together, and it they made an arrangement, and uh, it worked. Yeah, it sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I know you had sort of two major relationships in your life with your first husband, yes. Wesley, and then with the, uh, the wonderful actor David Margulies. Is there something about being with someone who understands what it's like to be an actor that you found different from being oh, with someone yes, who didn't. Oh yes, it's very different, and you know, I don't. It's hard to know how to talk about it. I certainly know it's important, and now, it's three years since David's death. I miss talking to him a lot, and talking to him about acting when mm. there are particular things. Somebody that you really know, and who really not only knows but is good at and likes to explore it in talking about it. So I I miss that terribly. And uh, I sometimes think when something comes up, you know, I found myself recently thinking, oh, I need to talk about this to somebody. It may not... And I think, who mm, who can I? Because often it's not... You know, you need some... You need some background, you yes. know, before it's okay to just jump in. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. Well, Josh, I may be calling on you when I get in. Anytime. You can call on me anytime. <laughs> um, well, Lois, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's I'm. Whenever I get to spend time with you, I'm. I'm. I feel grateful. And, Likewise, uh, I feel the same way. Thank so, you, Josh. Um, thank you. Actor and director Andre Gregory was Lois Smith's colleague during their time at Philadelphia's Theater of the Living Arts in the 1960s. From the American Masters Digital Archive, here is Andre Gregory on the power of the theater. Time, you see, is unique in the performing arts to the theater. It's all about time, and it's very close to life 
in the sense that every night you're born, you come onto the stage, you struggle a little bit, you laugh a little bit, you flounder a little bit, and then suddenly before you know it, it's all over, and the performance is forgotten except in the distorted memories of those few people who saw it. So it is a life and a death every night. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Tsunashima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. The 1994 interview with Andre Gregory is an outtake from American Masters' Richard Avedon, Darkness and Light, directed by Helen Whitney. We'd also like to thank the American Masters interns for their contributions to this episode. Dylan McKenna, Haley Rosenberg, and Talia Smith. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And please give us a rating or review. See you in a couple weeks.